Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. Well, if you've been here, you know, about any time at all, one of the things that becomes kind of obvious about our body here, our fellowship, is that we have children. Amen? (laughs) And hopefully it's obvious that we love children. One of the kind of the core things that we really value here is young people as children. In fact, there's probably not a place in the world that we would rather have kids be than here with us in the fellowship. And so... Um, there are times, most certainly, when our children choir gets going a little bit, and um, my son Nash has appointed himself song leader of that group, so Lisa catches, you know, about half the sermons, but I preach them to her at home all the time, so it's no problem, <laughs> and you tell, we, we get along here, if you've not been around, or maybe you've been around a while, and you haven't heard us say this recently, we get along here by both uh, patience and consideration, those of you that maybe don't have children or children are grown, um, we love and appreciate so much your patience with the parents that are here and the young people that at times can be noisy as we're trying to raise them to learn how to worship. And we want them to watch and to see how that happens and to learn. And at the same time, parents who uh, have the children, we appreciate so much your consideration at times when you know, the little one gets a little bit noisy, we do try to provide space for them to go. And in light of that, I wanted to tell you about, if you didn't see this on the table out there, um, Karen has so graciously put together a nice little packet for our young people. And on the front of this is a little, uh, it's called a graphic organizer that has all kinds of stuff on it where the kids can participate with what we do on Sunday morning. So there's songs we sing, the sermon title, words that you hear, you kind of mark off, and you can even draw a picture of the sermon, not the preacher, okay? And uh, you put it right there. And, um, and then there's some coloring pages, too. So if maybe the kids are a little young and can't do that, there's some coloring pages. In fact, there's even crayons out there. And you can even go right now, and you can get that way. Ask your parents. But you can go, and you can use that now. We want to make sure. We want to just continue to support our young people. At the same time, there is a, the half-sheet sermon outline that is still out there that you can use. And I want to make mention of a change. At the bottom, um, what, we've, what I've put there at the bottom now is f- three, four, five further discussion or contemplation questions. So after the sermon, or if you want to go back and listen to it on our podcast, you can. And then you can use those for private study. You can use those questions in um, a small group gathering. Maybe you have coffee with a brother or sister in Christ that you are studying the Bible with. Um, You can, in fact, use that if your daughter, Samantha, is uh, overseas and wanting to study the Bible. Um, That's the point of that. So I want to continue to put things into your hands to equip you to use that. So all that being said, we're ready to go and good morning again to you. We are at part number eight, part number eight of our series called Ready for War. And the thing that is underpinning this entire series is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are right now in a battle with Satan. And if you're kind of maybe blind to it, oblivious to it, maybe you haven't really noticed it much, That's, that war is coming after you hard, and you might be losing that war. And so Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, pauses before he finishes his letter 
to tell the Christians in Ephesus about this war and how God has made provision for them to actually have victory over this war. God imagines this. He made preparation for you to actually defeat Satan and sin in your life. And so that's why we are walking through piece by piece God's armor he's given to us. And we come today to the shield of faith. We've got to wear this armor. We've got to use this armor. And today we're going to talk about the shield of faith. And one of the things that's really unique about this piece of armor is that Paul actually, inside of this piece of armor, describes some extra things. He talks about the, actually the way that Satan is going to come after us. So this morning I want to do three simple things. One, the attack. We're going to see the way Satan attacks us. We're going to see, number two, the way the shield protects us. And the third part we're going to finish with, how do we actually use the shield, the defense? So let's start with the attack. Paul says this about the attack, if you notice. He tells us both who and what is going to attack you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And he uses a really interesting phrase when he talks about who. He says it's the evil one who attacks you. The evil one. Now Paul here has already established that we are at war not with flesh and blood, not with things of this earth, but we are at war with a cosmic power. His name is Satan. He's the ruler of this world. He's the liar from the very beginning, the prince of this air, of the authorities. And so he has established that point, but here he uses a particular word that is actually not used very often in the Bible. He calls Satan the evil one. And that's a really difficult word to translate because what it actually means when when Paul calls Satan the evil one here. What he's trying to say is the one who wants to hurt you. The one who wants to inflict pain. The one who has in his intention, in his desire, when he interacts with you, to watch you suffer, hurt, and be miserable. That's his intent. And when Paul says this evil one is going to shoot flaming arrows at you, he loves to watch you suffer, to watch you hurt, to watch you weep, and to watch you doubt. He loves it. And I think he wants you to know that about Satan, that that's his desire. So he tells us who attacks us, but he tells us also what he attacks us with. And he says it's flaming arrows or flaming darts. Now, Paul is drawing from Roman attire and Roman warfare at this time, and he's talking about a really high-tech piece of battle, piece of armor, piece of um, military device, the arrow at this time, the flaming arrow. Arrows have been around for a long time, but they invented this thing called a flaming arrow. It's pretty cool. And the tip of the arrow would be hollowed out, typically, and they would fill it with this sticky substance, kind of called like like pitch, um, something along those lines, and they would light it on fire before they shot it. And that pitch would have a slow, yet really incredibly hot burn to it. And when that arrow would hit, it would not just pierce you, but it would explode. And the pitch that was on fire would splatter all over you. That's the idea behind it. It's pretty high tech in this time for them to do that. And so Paul is drawing from this analogy and he's saying, listen, there are flaming arrows that are coming at you. Now, he tells you this not just to show his intelligence about Roman warfare. He tells you this because it's telling you the way in which Satan wants to attack you, the way that he wants to do it. 
You see, arrows have a unique way of attacking you, and typically uh, warfare at this time was hand-to-hand -hand combat. You would be wrestling, you'd be fighting, you'd have a sword, and you'd swing, and all of a sudden, arrows is a different kind of war because arrows do some different things. First of all, they come from a distance. They're not close up. Arrows come from out of nowhere. You oftentimes don't see until you're hit what's happening, what's coming after you. Arrows also can come one at a time, but they can also come as a barrage against you, hundreds burrowing down on you. And arrows were designed, as I've mentioned, to cause pain, to cause suffering, and eventually watch you die. That's what arrows were designed to do. They, in fact, invented these in a certain way so that you would suffer before you died so that it would scare the rest of the people saying, I don't want to be hit by one of those arrows. So they were intended to actually watch you suffer before you die. Now, how does that play into this with Satan? Well, Paul, using this analogy, tells us two things about the way Satan attacks us. First of all, he comes into our thoughts. Do you remember where the war is fought? All the way back a couple months ago, we were talking about how this war is fought. And it's fought not in flesh and blood, and it's fought actually between your ears, in your mind. That's where we're fighting this war. And these arrows, like arrows, come into our thoughts. Have you ever noticed thoughts can be that way, sort of like these arrows? They come from out of nowhere. You don't ever see them coming. They hit you, and you're like, where did that come from? And sometimes they cause long, slow suffering before you actually eventually give in to it. You see, these things come in the form of things like evil thoughts or your imagination. I mean, I don't know about you, but you can be reading the Bible and praying, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, bang, you have this thought that is like a really horrible attitude or some evil idea, right? And you, you ever wondered, like, what in the world? Like, I'm like literally reading the Bible or praying or I'm driving or working, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, bang, this thought comes. That's an arrow coming after you. Or maybe it comes in the form of doubts where you start wondering things like, man, is God really true? Is all this real about God? Is he, does he really actually even care for me? Can I trust him? And see, what Satan is doing is constantly drawing back and firing arrows into your mind so that you will doubt God. Now, that's the first thing about arrows, that they come into our thoughts out of nowhere oftentimes. And the second thing they're trying to do, like the Romans would use when they use these arrows, is that they would attack your position. That's what they're supposed to do. So you would, from a wall at a distance, shoot an arrow to try to tell this group coming after me, you better change your position, because I can see you and I can hit you. And so the arrows were designed to make you change your position. Now, remember... Up until this point, we've, we've put on three pieces of armor. The belt of truth, we have truth now. We've got a breastplate of righteousness, which means Jesus Christ now makes me fully acceptable to God. And just last week, we put on the shoes of the gospel of readiness, which give us a sure foundation. We stand on the gospel of peace. So we have truth, we have acceptance with God, and we have peace. And these arrows that come flying into your mind are designed to destroy and kill that position. Satan does not want you to think that you know truth. He wants you to doubt all this. He doesn't want you to think that you actually have full acceptance with God now. He wants you to wonder if it's true or not. And he does not want you to have a settled, peace-filled relationship with God. He wants you always upset. And he's firing these arrows at you all the time.
You see, here's what Satan's trying to do. When he fires an arrow out of nowhere, these thoughts, what he wants to do, his hope is, is that you would take those thoughts that come at you and own them as yours. So let's say you get hit with a thought this week like, is this stuff really true? Like, like, is Jesus really true? Did this really happen? Did he really die on a cross? And you get hit with that thought. What Satan wants you to do in that moment is say, that must be me. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I don't actually ever, have I ever really believed in God? And he wants you to own it. Or maybe you get hit with a thought like, there's no way I could ever be saved. I'm always, I'll never measure up to what God wants. He wants you to own that like it's your thought, not like it's an arrow. And so we've got to move to what protects us from these arrows that come from Satan. And what he says, what protects us from arrows is a shield. That's how you survived the arrows that were shot at you, was a shield. You need a shield. Now, in Paul's day, there were options for shields. This is what protects you. They had a round circular one that had a curve to it, sort of like Captain America. There was, that was a small shield, and that was used to uh, protect the soldier in hand-to-hand combat. And he could use it like a weapon where he could swing it and then block a, um, a, a blow of a sword. But that was not the kind of shield that Paul used, the word. The word he used was the word scutum, which has some really important qualities you need to know about, two in particular. He picked this particular shield to protect you from these arrows for two reasons. Number one, this shield had a powerful substance. It was made of thick wood, heavy. And then they would take thick pieces of straps of leather and they would weave together and braid together leather, multiple layers of leather to go on the outside of this heavy piece of wood. And they would douse that leather with water and anoint it with oil and and, and rub oil into it so that when the fiery arrows were coming, they would hit the firm wood and not go through and hit the wet leather and be extinguished. You see, the substance of this shield was designed specifically to stop these arrows. Now, what does Paul say your shield is? Leather? Wood? The shield of faith. It's faith. You see, our shield is made of faith. And faith is not actually at all a complicated idea. But it does need clarification. It gets mingled and mixed up with what it really is. It needs some clarification. You see, faith is the word that we use to describe what we trust in enough to obey. I'm going to say that one more time to make sure you get it. Faith is the word we use to describe what you and I trust in enough to obey. And faith is not a foreign concept to humans. In fact, you don't need to be religious to have faith. Everybody operates by faith. Everybody does. There's not a no faith in faith. Everybody operates by faith. It's just what do you have faith in? You can have faith in a person like a mentor. Whatever that person says, I do it because I trust them. You can have faith in maybe a parent or a spouse. You can have faith in a leader, like a religious leader. I just follow them wherever they go, whatever they say, I do that, and I trust them. You can have faith in a political leader, that the moment this person gets in office, everything will be fixed. And you can put all your faith into them, and you follow them. Some people have faith not in people, but in principles, like maybe 
I only trust the scientific method. I just trust being able to test things and, and produce results and look at hypotheses and see if they're real. Or maybe you trust in something like the design method, which is I'm going to try 50 ideas and see which one sticks, you know? But let me tell you the one Satan wants you to trust in the most. His goal. Satan wants you to place your faith in you. That's the place where he wants to transfer it. And you see this running rampant today, where people live in the world, in the flow of I trust me and me alone. My thoughts, my feelings are the center of all moral judgments of right and wrong. My, my feelings, my thoughts, my beliefs. And we don't hold ourselves accountable to anything outside of us. That's what Satan wants. You see, the entire message of the Bible is this. That God is demonstrating over and over, above and beyond all other things, that He should be trusted. More than people, more than any principle, and even more than yourself. And not only does He possess the right to demand your faith as your Creator, He has earned that right as your Savior. Over and over, God has proven that to you time and time again. His word and his ways have proven trustworthy, even when they're counterintuitive to what you believe and what you trust. Even when God runs counterintuitive to what you've learned, what you've heard, who you follow, and what you believe, when it runs counterintuitive, God has over and over proven himself, you can trust me. Now that substance of faith is what begins to protect us. But there's another part to this, this shield. Not just its substance, but also its complete protection. As I mentioned, there's different kinds of shields. Now, the scutum was as large as a door. Now, picture that door as you walk out there. That's about how large this thing was. And as you can tell, it was pretty heavy. And they would carry it, and oftentimes they would plant it into the ground and put it at about a 45-degree angle, and the soldier would bring his entire body behind it. And soldiers would even come together to make a unit, and they would protect themselves like an igloo inside of these things. And Paul says that this shield is large enough and can protect your entire life and quench every arrow. You notice he says all of the fiery darts. When you use the shield of faith, there's not a fiery dart that can get through. Okay, so that leaves us with the end, right? How do we use it? <laughs> How am I going to use this? I get, okay, faith, trust in God's word and his way, and shield against arrows that are trying to bombard my mind to doubt and depart from God. How do we use it? Let me tell you. First of all, there's two things. You've got to prepare your shield. Now, in that day, uh, that that piece of wood and leather, the soldier daily had to perform a routine to take care of that leather. He would have to oil it every day. He'd get up and he would oil the, um, the leather to make sure it didn't dry out. He would have to store it properly. If it was wet, he would have to let it dry and then oil it and then put it away. He couldn't just, you know, put a tarp over it. I don't know if they had tarps and just cover it and throw it in the tent. He had to care for it. He had to protect it. He had to prepare it. And the same is true with your faith. You and I need to be people that are nurturing and caring for and preparing our faith. We've got to establish our faith on the promises and the character of God. What he's promised us and his character should establish our faith in him. You and I have to develop faith. 
Remember Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by, you tell me, hearing. But where does your hearing come from? Now don't say faith is just word of God. There's something in the middle. There's your hearing. Faith comes by listening. Faith comes by submission. Faith comes by willing to open your ears and listen to God. But where does ears being open come from? The word of God over and over proving itself true to you. Do you see that? Faith does not come by just reading the Bible. Reading the Bible has to open your ears to make you finally say, I should actually trust God more than I trust myself. Look at what he does. And when your ears are open, then you'll have faith. Do you see that? So you've got to establish it. You've got to develop it. You've got to nurture it. Peter says that we need to drink the pure milk of the word. And then the Hebrews would tell us to move on to maturity. But we don't stop drinking milk. We continue to nurture and provide all that that faith needs in the word of God. And then he says in 2 Peter, we've got to supplement our faith. That list in 2 Peter chapter 1 says, add to your faith, supplement your faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, all those things, brother, affection, and love. Those things add and supplement like vitamins to your faith. Do you see that? These become daily routines of a soldier who does not want to be hit by an arrow. Establish, develop, nurture, and then supplement your faith. But you can't just prepare it. you got to use it, okay? Here's where we go. Last part. you got to use your faith. Now, notice Paul says something different. In the first three pieces of armor, he has said, having strapped on the belt, or having shod your feet with the gospel, or having put on, now he says, not having a shield, what does he say? Taking a shield. And that's different. He says, above all, take it up. And what he's not saying is that the shield is more important. That's not what above all means. What it means is, take the shield from beside you and put that shield in front of you. Above all means in front of the breastplate, the belt, and the shoes. In front of that, you've got to put the shield, you've got to take it up, and you've got to use it. You see, what he's getting after is this, that faith needs to be out in front of you, not beside you. Faith is not to be compartmentalized in your life. Faith is not the religious part of you. Faith is you. Do you get that? Faith cannot be the religious part of you. Faith has to be you. You operate by faith. You can't just come in here and practice religion and leave because you're trusting in something else. Faith is you. It's what you trust in. And he says you've got to have this shield of faith. And so you and I have to take it up. Functionally, what that means is, let me tell you practically what that means. Having faith means that we take basic truths and make them specific and personal. Here's what it means. This, if you walk away, get this. What it means to put your shield up and use faith means to take basic general truths of the Bible and make them specific and personal to your life. Let me try to give you a few examples. Let's say you're restless about where you live, about the job you currently have, about the relationships that are in your life or the relationships that maybe are not in your life that, that you want. Well, the truth of the Bible says this. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching in Athens, and he says that God has ordained times and seasons and boundaries where you are for this reason, so that you would seek and find Him. 
So if you are restless about things, watch how you drill this down into your life. I know that God is involved in where I live and what's going on in my life, and he is involved in that process. That means I can trust where I am right now that he at least is wanting to use this situation, even if it's difficult, to make me grope and seek for him. Do you see that? General to specific. Let's say you're afraid to give, to share, or even be wise with your money. Tim mentioned how many verses in the Bible talk about money. You know one, um, you guys probably know this, if I start quoting it, you'll know it, where Hebrews 13 says, I will never, you tell me, leave you or, you know what that verse is about? Money. Hebrews 13.5 says, do not covet or be greedy with your money because I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what it says. And so if you're struggling to be able to give or to share, you come to yourself and say, listen, do I actually believe that God is benevolent, good, and sovereign? If I believe that, I now am free to share with what I have because I believe I'll have more. Do you see that? Okay. Let's say you're insecure about the love that you receive from a parent or a spouse or a friend or a church. Getting a little closer to home now. And let's say you hate how defensive you get in those relationships because you're just insecure about the love you're not receiving that you think you want. Here's what faith says. Faith repeats Psalm 90 in a personal way where it says, Satisfy me, God, in the morning with your steadfast love that I will rejoice in all my days. You see, what faith says is even if I'm frustrated about the kind of love that I'm getting from a parent or even a spouse or a friend or my church or my coworkers, even if I'm frustrated with that love, there is a kind of love that can satisfy me to the level in which I have joy and that frees you to enter those relationships where you're not begging for their love, but you're ready to give it. Do you see the difference? Most of us get into relationships because we want to get something from people. But when you get that from God, you're free to enter into relationships saying, my life for yours, not your life for me. That's Jesus Christ teaching us. Do you see this? Okay, let me give you another one. Let's say you're embarrassed because you think you should be farther along in your life. I'm 34. I should be accomplished more, right? Look at that 32-year-old. He's farther ahead than I am. I'm 54. I'm 84. I should be farther. I'm embarrassed about where I am. I haven't finished this school. I haven't finished this degree. I haven't got this job. Look at what I'm doing in my life. I haven't met the right person or had the right family or got the right house. Let's say you're struggling with that. We remember that Jesus said twice, when you learn how to be faithful with the little things, I promise you, you'll be a ruler over many things. Come have joy with me. The little things that are in front of you, be faithful. Or let's say, lastly, you get frustrated because you as a person are drawn to really destructive, indulgent sins. Let's say you get frustrated with yourself because you're drawn to want to go sin over and over. And you know that you're a Christian, but you're drawn to go to the party or sleep with the person or watch the movie or open up the laptop and watch what you shouldn't watch. And you're drawn to that. And the nagging guilt of your religion keeps bothering you and you're frustrated. Let's say that's true. Here's what faith is. Faith borrows Psalm 30 verse 5 and it says this. I'm going to have the discipline to say no, even though I'm frustrated with what they call FOMO, fear of missing out. That's FOMO, fear of missing out. Because that's why you indulge in your sin. 
whether it's food or work or pornography or sex or drugs, whatever it is, why you indulge it because you say in your mind, if I miss out on this, I won't have what I need, what I want. And let's say you're frustrated. Here's what faith says. Psalm 30, verse 5. says, weeping may stay through the night, but my joy will come in the morning. And you fight with every ounce of energy you have to stop the indulgence and say, I might even cry all night frustrated about this, but when I wake up in the morning, I won't have the regret of sleeping with someone I'm not married to or doing a drug I shouldn't do or indulging in more and more food to ease myself of what I feel pain over, pouring myself into more and more work because I just don't feel significant. you see what I'm getting at? I'm going to fight through this. And I know I'm going to have joy in the morning. You see, maybe you're a person who's overwhelmed by guilt and shame. That's what sin does to you. And you say things like, who, am, who I am and what I do will never be enough. I've got a really tough reality for you this morning. The reason that attack, whatever way Satan attacks you with that arrow, it's always around who I am or what I do is not enough. It's always around that. And the reason those attacks hurt, whatever way they come, through your job, through your spouse, as a parent, in your life, wherever they come, I'm not enough. The reason that hurts and why you puff yourself up with pride to put people down, or why you give in to indulgence to uh, feel better, or why you give in to despair, the reason it hurts is because it's true. Now, I know I'm probably not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to, like, you know, Tony Robbins, kind of like TED Talk with a Bible verse, make you feel better. That's a joke. But the only way I know how to actually make you feel better is to tell you the truth. That's actually real. Who I am and what I do is not enough. I will fail my wife. I will fail my kids today. I will fail you as your minister. I will fail our elders. I will fail my friends. I will fail God. Who I am and what I do is not enough. And that hurts when Satan attacks us. And the only way I know how to make us feel better is to say this. Even though we are not enough, God has said this in Isaiah 62, verse 5. When I look at you, I am like a groom seeing his bride in her dress for the very first time. God doesn't say, I need you to be good so I can finally love you. He says, let me love you so you'll eventually be good. And if you don't have that love, will you please let somebody show you? Let's stand and sing.